It's good to be with you again. Uh, a privilege again to bring uh, the scriptures before you. You can turn in your Bibles to First Peter, First Peter chapter five, is where we're going uh, to be. First Peter chapter five, verses five through seven. I'll read. Read our text this morning, and then uh, we'll ask the Lord's help in prayer. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Lord God, we have uh, sung already the the point of this passage, Lord, our um, being empty of power of goodness. Uh, but your good care for us that you will provide, the Lord will provide. And so, Lord, we come to you with thankful, thankful hearts that you do care for us, Lord, and that you've displayed that care so clearly in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to take the burden of our sins upon himself, as we read, to be mocked, to be regarded as the refuse of the world for our sake, that we might be lifted out of the refuse of sin and made children of God. Lord, open our eyes this morning as we look at this passage, Lord. Open our eyes to see our own smallness and your greatness, your goodness beyond measure, Lord. Lord, I ask for your grace especially to, to speak to your people this morning. Help me to speak clearly. Lord, we pray that you would exalt yourself in the name of your Son through this time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this this passage uh, came uh, to my attention recently. Uh, Pastor Vondolowski was uh, preaching there at Grace Emmanuel the ordination service of uh, Brother Dan Simpson. And uh, of course he was he was talking from the beginning of chapter 5, the, the charge to the shepherd, the flock of God, but my eyes fell down to verse 6, and it really, uh, uh, the Lord really pierced my heart with, uh, with verse 6 and verse 7, so I've been uh, meditating over this passage, and I thought, well, you know, what better way to meditate over a passage than to write a sermon about it and, uh, and share it with you, so I hope uh, you will benefit uh, from this. So we're, we're going to go through, especially verse 6 and verse 7, but we're, verse 5 will provide some more context later on. Uh, but I want us to look at just each phrase here that, that Paul, or Peter, I'm sorry, Peter uses here. And so first, of course, the main commandment of verse 6 is humble yourselves. That's the main command, the main thrust of this passage. Humble yourselves. 
And of course, to humble is to cause to be low or abased. All right? And of course, the opposite of that is pride, right? to be puffed up or to exalt oneself. And because of our sinful nature, of course, our tendency is towards pride, to puff ourselves up, to see ourselves as more important, more wise, more capable than we really are. And it's this tendency towards pride, more often than not, that is the root of the conflicts that we have at at home or in the church or in the workplace. It's often the source of our own discontentment and frustration with life. We are puffed up. We think we deserve more from life than what we're getting. Matthew Henry comments on this passage. He says, Humility is the great preserver of peace and order in all Christian churches and societies. Consequently, pride is the great disturber of them and and the cause of the most dissensions and breaches in the church. So to be humbled, though, requires that we see ourselves rightly. And that only happens when we see ourselves in the light of biblical truth. To be humble, again, let me repeat, to be humble requires that we see ourselves rightly. But we only see ourselves rightly when we see ourselves in the light of biblical truth. Calvin says that uh, wisdom can be divided into two branches. The true knowledge of God and the true knowledge of ourselves. And that we can only truly know ourselves or see ourselves in the light of right knowledge of God. So we must see ourselves first. We, should, we need to see God rightly. Then we will see ourselves rightly and be humbled. So again, commenting on this passage, John Calvin writes, Peter calls those humble who being emptied of every confidence in their own power and wisdom and righteousness seek every good from God alone. And it's funny because I think our brother just summarized that idea in his prayer this morning. That we would see ourselves rightly and see uh, that all of our good comes from God alone. So I want us to look at three examples of this biblical humility. And the first example of this we're going to look at is in Job chapter 40. You turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 40. And of course, if you're uh, familiar with the story of Job, uh, Job is going through great trials, although... God himself has said Job is a blameless man, yet uh, he has given Satan permission to test Job and to take uh, away his, his family, take away his riches, take away the things that were dear to him and even afflict him with great diseases and pain. And of course, the, all these the chapters up to chapter uh, 39, I believe, is him arguing, or 38, is him arguing with his friends, right? 
having a theological discussion. Why is this happening to me? This shouldn't be happening to me. I'm, I'm a blameless man. God should be giving me uh, all blessings. And then, of course, Job gets an audience with God, and God does all the talking. And in chapter 40, we see a humbled Job, right? Chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no more. It, when, when Job encounters, again, here he is, now he has a better knowledge of God. He sees his power. He sees God in the whirlwind and God speaking and laying out wisdom. I've done this and I do this and I order this. And Job now says, I am of small account. Right? That's humility. To have a small accounting of ourselves in our own eyes. To be small in our own eyes before an awesome God, a mighty God. When before Job was ready to argue, he said, just give me an audience with God. I'll tell him what it's all about and ask him why this and why that. And why you're ordering things wrong. You need to be doing this. But then when he truly encounters God, he says, I have nothing more to say. I I can't say anything. God, you are great and mighty and wise. And who am I to question what you're doing? And again, we see another picture in Job 42, Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now he's talking about himself. Who am I hiding counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And now, so now Job sees his ignorance, right? When before he's arguing philosophy with his friends who are arguing back, they think they know it all. They think they have the universe figured out. And then Job encounters God and he says, I have no idea what I was talking about. I was talking blabbing foolishness. Man's wisdom becomes foolishness compared to the wisdom of God. And again, that's humility. To know that we don't have it figured out. We do not have all the answers. And that even what we know, we don't know what we should know or as we should know it. So Job shows us an example of humility before God. Let's look at another example. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is um, David. The King, King David. And this is quite a different circumstance. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. Now, 
this is where uh, the prophet Nathan comes to David and tells him that God will build for David a house, right? A kingdom, a dynasty that will endure forever. And one of his sons will be exalted and be king forever. Right? This is very different from Job. This is, these are, he's not experiencing judgments. He's experiencing a profound outpouring of God's grace and goodness. And look at how David answers in verse 18. So the second Samuel chapter 7. Verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. So, given this news that God is going to bless his house and bring the Messiah through David's family, David doesn't say, I knew you were going to pick me. Of course, I'm the giant slayer. I, you know, I'm King David, man after your own heart. I mean, who else, who else will you pick? He doesn't say that. He says, who am I? He sees the grace and goodness of God and he is humbled. So again, here's two different pictures. Job is humbled by adversity, by pain. David is humbled by a great outpouring of God's goodness and grace to him. We don't have to be humbled by trials. Often it happens that way. But we can also be humbled by seeing God's Grace, undeserved kindness poured out to us. But in both, Job and David see that they are unworthy before God. They have nothing to claim. No goodness, no righteousness to claim before God. No strength to claim. But they are low and empty before God. And I want to look at a a third example, and that's in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And many of you, again, will know this passage when Isaiah has a vision uh, of God. Uh, in his glory filling the temple. Isaiah chapter 6, I'll start in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah speaking now. I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So again, notice this pattern. Right? He has, now he has a vision of God. He sees God more clearly. And in the light of that, he now sees himself differently. Right? I'm sure Isaiah woke up that morning not thinking, oh, what an unclean sinner I am. He's probably thinking, I, you know, I'm the prophet of God. No, I'm pretty good. I look at these other, you know, Israelites. They're all idolaters. I'm the prophet of God. Right? But then when he sees the holiness of God, when he encounters the power of the living God, his opinion of himself changes very drastically. He says, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. I cannot be near the holy God. Surely I'm going to die. Right? And again, that's humility. To see ourselves rightly in view of the truth of who God is. This is humility. As Again, as, as Calvin said, emptying ourselves of every confidence in our own power, our own wisdom and righteousness, and then looking to God alone for all good. True humility before God is to see ourselves as devoid of significance, empty of ability or understanding and righteousness, and to know that we live off of the mercy of God alone. How do you see yourself? Right? We live in a world that is all about building up our self-esteem, our view of ourselves, that we wouldn't have negative opinions about ourselves. And what the Bible labors to do is to give us that, to give us that complex. You are low. You are a sinner. Why? Because the Bible likes to make us feel negative about ourselves? No, because it's only in that place of seeing ourselves in truth. What, is, what did our text say? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we first have to be brought into this humble state, this humble condition, a humble view of ourself before we can ever hope to be a recipient of the mercy of God. God does not give mercy and grace to the proud, to those who think they are self-sufficient and righteous enough. He doesn't give it to Pharisees. He gives it to lowly, broken-hearted sinners. And so that is, again, the very first step of Christianity is that we would be humbled in our own eyes to see we have no strength to save ourselves, no righteousness to commend us to God, but we need all of those things from God himself. And he has given them through Christ. Through Christ alone we gain righteousness. Through Christ alone, we gain strength and wisdom. So, Peter commands the believers at the end of his letter, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Be brought low in your own eyes. But then, if we turn back, we're going to be jumping back to 1 Peter this entire time. So, you can put your finger there. So he says, humble yourselves, and then he tells us, 
in uh, what situation we need to humble ourselves especially. And he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. What does Peter mean by this phrase, under the mighty hand of God? Well, to answer that question, we can look at the larger context of the letter and then at the immediate context of the passage. So throughout the letter of 1 Peter, we see that he is writing to Christians who are suffering at various levels for the sake of their faith in Jesus Christ. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, you'll find that he addresses this letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion. He's referring to these Christians as strangers who have been tossed out of their home, right, wandering a foreign land. And then in verse uh, 6, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So these are Christians who are experiencing many varied trials and difficulties. And in chapter 2, verse 21, he says to them, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. That he is calling them to imitate Christ's submissive obedience that will take them through difficulties and trials. And then go to chapter 4, verse 19. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Right? So he calls them to submit to these trials and sufferings as they are God's will and entrusting themselves to God's care. So in the wider context of the letter, he says we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God means to reverently and submissively receive our present circumstances as coming from God himself, as being his will for us to walk through. So the passage teaches us that we are to humble ourselves under the circumstances that God has put us in. Humble ourselves under the circumstances God has put us in. Matthew Henry writes, The the consideration of the omnipotent hand of God should make us humble and submissive to him in all that he brings upon us. Our circumstances are from God. God rules all things according to his perfect wisdom and infinite power. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has ordained our circumstances. We have to realize that. Whatever has come into our life has come in from God. It's not happening by chance. It is not a coincidence. It's not an accident. 
Although it might be true that our circumstances sometimes are a result of our own choices, whether good or bad, sometimes they are a result of our own sins, or they might be a result of others sinning against us. Yet, the scripture shows us over and over again that God rules even over those circumstances. He rules even over the sins of his own people and the wrath of their enemies. Right? Th- think of Joseph, right? Joseph and his brothers. God ruled over that situation. Joseph could say, it is God who sent me to Egypt. Yes, he used your jealousy. He used your sin. That doesn't get you off the hook for that. But it was God who sent me to Egypt to save your life. We even think of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus as, as we were reading. There's many, much sin there. Many enemies coming against Jesus Christ, plotting, thinking they're accomplishing their purpose. And what does God do? He turns it. It was his foreordained purpose, Peter tells us in the book of Acts. You accomplished what God decided would happen beforehand. That same sovereignty is over every one of our lives. And so God calls us, Peter here in this passage calls us to submit to the circumstances that God has put us in to humble ourselves before him. Receive those circumstances. So Christian, let us resolve to walk these valleys of humiliation, these difficulties, as long as God sees fit to keep us there because his purpose is good. And we will see more about that later, his good purpose for us. But secondly, when we look at the more immediate context that Peter is talking about in chapter 5, there's another way in which he wants us to humble ourselves under God's hand. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This passage also teaches us that we must humble ourselves before the people that God has placed around us. The people. And first he says the elders, right? But it's one thing to humble ourselves before God. It's often more difficult to humble ourselves before others. Peter himself, think about Peter's life. In Luke chapter 5 verse 8, when Jesus blessed Peter and his fellow fishermen with a miraculous catch of fish, What did Peter do? He fell on his face before Jesus humbly and said, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. The display of humility before God. But then, no doubt, Peter participated in the disciples arguing about who was the greatest. So he went from, Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man, to I'm better than you are. And it's so easy for us to do that, isn't it? To have a humble attitude before God, but yet a prideful attitude towards other people. 
But Peter here calls us as Christians to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another, beginning with those that God has put in leadership in his church. He applies this especially to our elders, those that God has called and that the church has ordained to be under shepherds. They are the one that God has called especially to instruct us, to correct us, and even to rebuke us when it is necessary. Today I think people see pastors as glorified religious life coaches. They want encouragement and positivity only from their pastors. But when they cross, the moment they cross over to correction, they are very much offended. Don't tell me I'm doing something wrong. But, Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ has given you a great gift in qualified elders. Men who are meant to be a help to you. According to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, elders are meant to benefit you, to do you good by watching over your soul. Would we refuse a benefit? Refuse a special gift that Jesus Christ has given to us? That's what your elders are. So you are called to humbly obey and submit to them. And only humility can cultivate that attitude. Look, turn over to Psalm 141. Psalm 141. Psalm 141, verse 5. David here is writing. He says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. We can see that David, David sees this is good for me. To be rebuked, to be corrected by a godly man. It's good, but sometimes it's hard for us to submit our head to that goodness, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard for our children. They go to the bathtub kicking and screaming. They know it's good for them, but they don't want it. In the same way, we can do that too. We can refuse what is good for us, but it takes a heart of humility a humble view of ourselves before God and before others to receive that good correction. I pray that we would have that humble heart in ourselves. Because again, how how does Christ do his work through his church? Well, he does it through his word. He does it through his spirit. But he also does it through these offices that he has ordained. To be shepherds, under shepherds to his people. So we are to humble ourselves towards our elders, those that God has put in authority. But this attitude of humility must also extend not only to our leaders, but Peter says to one another. God has placed you in a church community, 
in a covenant community. And this assembly is filled with people who are just like you, fellow sinners who have weaknesses and gifts of grace given to them, people who are still in the process of growth and sanctification. And of course, in that, in this community, we will inevitably have offenses, differences of opinion, and even sins against one another. It will happen. How in the world could a church hope to survive such things? Only an attitude of profound humility, a sense of our own sin and unworthiness and smallness before God and others can humble us and create that culture of love and unity that marks the church of Jesus Christ. So Peter tells us, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God. Now I want us to go to verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. I know I'm skipping things. I can't cover everything or we'd be here many more hours. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So now this phrase, casting all your anxieties on him. Now this is interesting because this phrase uh, shows us how we are to be humble. Casting our anxieties, right? Uh, English lesson, right? A participle phrase here modifies the verb. Humble yourselves. How? Well, Peter says, by casting your anxiety upon God. We are to humble ourselves under the hand of God by throwing our burdens of fear and worry upon God for him to work out as he pleases. Worry and anxiety is often a product of our desire to control a situation and to make it work out in a way that we think will be to our good or advantage. But notice in that sentence, there is subtle pride that lurks in worrying. We don't, I mean, I don't at least, usually think about worry and anxiety as being connected with pride. I don't know if maybe you do, but I usually don't. Why is it? Why is humility connected with throwing off anxiety? Well, in Worry and anxiety, there is a desire to control or manipulate circumstances. A desire to be sovereign over our own lives, right? I want this thing to work out this way. I want my life to be this. I want my family to be this. I want my work to be this. I want, I want to control my life. And when it's not going the way I want to control it, It makes me anxious, fearful, fretful. But instead, we are to humbly surrender to the God who is sovereign over us and all things. You see the difference. Control, let go, surrender. And secondly, worry and anxiety 
shows us an inflated opinion of our own wisdom, as if we know what is best for ourselves and others. We have to admit that we don't know. God alone has infinite wisdom. Right? Do, you think, do you think that Joseph said, all right, I am going to annoy my brothers so bad that they will sell me as a slave and then I'll make my way to Egypt and there I'll be in prison and then at the, just at the right time, I'll interpret a dream that Pharaoh has and step up to the highest position. No, he had no idea that was going to happen in his life. He would not have planned it that way. But do you see how it was only through that way that his, he and his family were saved and God was glorified? Joseph never would have chose that for himself. And the same is true for us. We have no idea what will happen five seconds from now. We have no idea how God puts our life and our circumstances into the tapestry of his sovereign plan. We have no idea. And to be anxious and worried and to think that we know, to think that we can manipulate our life and our circumstances to accomplish God's plan and his glory is foolishness is pride. And so we must humble ourselves. We don't know. God, I have no idea. Do with me as you please. I am at your disposal. And so Peter calls us to take that worry And take that anxiety and to cast it upon him. Right? Thinking makes me think of Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, that burden of sin that Christian carried. Take that burden of worry and throw it. And how do we do that? Well, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 through 7. Turn over there quickly. Philippians chapter 4. How do we... How do you cast worry and anxiety away? You know, for most of us, it's a yo-yo. You throw it away and it comes right back. (laughs) I don't want to worry about that. And then it comes back. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. We cast away anxiety through prayer by taking that burden of worry, anxiety, and fear and putting it upon the shoulders of Christ, of Almighty God. Lord, I cannot hold up these anxieties and fears. I cannot take them. You take them. I think it was George Mueller who talked about um, you know, rolling his worries and cares upon the Lord in prayer. So we must cast our worries like an anchor into the sea 
so that they may rest upon the rock of an omnipotent God. And so that brings us then to the last phrase I want to look at in 1 Peter chapter 5. The ground, the foundation of all that Peter is saying. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Right? That last phrase is the foundation for everything that Peter is telling us to do. In the face of difficult circumstances, how, how can I humbly submit to what God is doing in my life? How can I not worry? How can I not be anxious about my life or the trials that I am facing? Peter answers us. He says, this is why. Because the almighty, omnipotent God cares for you. He cares. God has committed himself to your welfare, both body and soul. I mean, think about that truth. In Christ, those who are in Christ, God has committed himself to your welfare, not only in this life, but more importantly, to your eternal welfare, the welfare of your soul. All that Peter commands and instructs us about humbly receiving God's providence, not being anxious, it all rests on this truth, the care of God for his people. He is our heavenly father. And as a parent cares for, is thoughtful for, provides for the needs of their children, God does infinitely more for us. The care of God for his people is like a nail that is firmly fixed. It is a truth that we anchor our life on, body and soul, for all eternity. But you might say, well, how can I be sure of God's care? How can I be sure of this? God has expressed this commitment to your care through the scriptures, especially in the covenant of grace and especially through his son, Jesus Christ. He has made Jesus Christ our mediator, our representative. And as such, he has become the surety or the guarantee of our eternal joy and good in God. Jesus Christ is the guarantee. Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God and fully man, his sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven where he intercedes for us. This all is the guarantee of God's commitment to care for us forever. Christian, God cares for you. Rest in his wisdom. Admit that you don't know the future. You don't know what is best. And rest in his wisdom. He knows what he is doing with you. 
Admit your powerlessness. I can't change a thing. I can't do a thing about it. And rest in his omnipotent sovereignty. God rules completely over your life and over every circumstance that comes to you. Rest in his sufficient grace. He will sustain you in every situation. Rest in his unfailing faithfulness. God will finish the work that he began in you. He will keep every promise he has made to you in Jesus Christ. This is where Peter invites us to rest. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. I came across this quotation from a book, um, John Newton on the Christian life. And I found it very encouraging. And I'll close by sharing this quotation. He says, This trust in the shepherd, God is our shepherd, makes it possible to praise God for what is behind us and to cheerfully trust in him for what is to come. The Christian path does not cut through many rose gardens. I love that. The Christian path does not cut through many rose gardens. But it will always be the right path. Along the way, the Good Shepherd will bring trials that are medicinal, designed to correct or to restrain or to cure the maladies of our souls. Right? Often, trials are medicinal. God has a good purpose in the difficulties that we are walking through and facing in our life. And so, again, like a child doesn't like to take medicine, tastes bad, tastes bitter, but it's good for you. Trials serve our ultimate and eternal prosperity. And the shepherd will bring no fiercer trial than he will sustain you to face. He will bring no heavier burden than he will strengthen you to carry. Amen. So, in closing, Christian, in every circumstance, let us humbly trust and submit to our good God and Savior. Let us cast away our fears and anxieties, because God is our loving Father in Jesus Christ. And He cares for us. And He will work all things for our eternal good and our salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, You are the perfect Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for your love and care for us. We thank you that you are all-knowing. You are all-powerful. You are all-good, full of grace and mercy. That you are righteous in all that you do. And Lord, who are we? We cannot see what will happen. We have no power to manipulate this world or accomplish things that we want to accomplish, Lord. It all comes through you. So, Lord, help us to clothe ourselves with 
humility before you. Give us that attitude, that heart that you gave to Job and to David and to Isaiah. To lay low before you and to know that that is the happiest place. To be in your hand. To be at the doors of your tabernacle. To gaze upon your beauty, your goodness, your strength. We thank you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would now bless as we come to the Lord's table, that we would see it as a token of your care for our souls that have come to us through the blood of your Son, through the crushing of his flesh on our behalf. Pray you would strengthen us through it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.